Welcome to the first Let's Talk About the Built Environment podcast. I'm Jonathan Shaw, Director of AG Project and Building Consultancy, and I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest and my friend, David Kelburn. Morning. David joins me to discuss his role as a chartered surveyor specialising in land development and how you can go from having a farmer's field to sale for development. We also discuss the day in the life of a development surveyor and his decision to leave a successful established practice to recently established Calvin Land or and teaching yoga up mountains. Yeah, it sounds a bit more interesting when you added the bit on the end. Uh, but if you said day in life of a development surveyor, mm-hmm. absolutely. Hopefully, not too many of the listeners are sure. Sure. So, David, we've known each other for a few years. Obviously, we're chartered surveyors, very different in what we do. So, mm-hmm. you can you tell us about how you became a chartered surveyor and obviously working in the rural sector, a bit of background. So, I always had an interest in farming. I came from a farming family, so my grandfather was a tenant on Dutchia Lancaster. And I think it was sort of a suggestion of my mum's that you could get into sort of the rural side of things, the auctioneering, because I was never getting into the farming side of things. So I did a, ended up a degree course at Harper Adams Agricultural College, of all things. So an agricultural college, but with a, a rural estate and land management degree. And I guess even at that age, I still wasn't entirely certain I wanted to go into this field. I guess when you get to university, the only time that it really sunk in that I knew I wanted to do this was in Magapia. Magapia was at United Utilities or Northwest Water, as it was then, working on their landed estates and sort of having the ability to get up onto the moors, walk around, rent reviews, this sort of thing. Thoroughly enjoyed that. That sort of sunk me in then, really. I definitely wanted to do the rural side of things. Yeah, and enjoy the countryside and more a sort of city dweller for a visit. And looking back now, 25 years after qualifying, and as a fellow of the RSS, like your good self, those years at Northwest Water, the responsibility was given, sort of drove me on to want some autonomy, which then drove me on to uh, take up the opportunity at Armistead Barnet back in the day. Yeah, the Charter Surveyor thing to me as a member of the RSS is, despite what might be going on in the RSS background at the moment, you know, sort of in terms of the way the organisations run, but the badge of honour it gives you to be able to say, look, it just displays integrity, doesn't it? Before someone has to sort of meet you, a bit like um, certain other professions, you sort of hope you've got that sort of stamp there. Say you're now school leaving age or, you know, university or considering your future and you might, similar to yourself, feel even interested in farming, the outdoor life, etc. What does a typical day in the life of a rural practice survey look like? Yeah, so rural practice, which is something I've moved away from a bit now, but that, it sounds like it's a really sort of narrow field of work, but it's not. I mean, you're dealing with valuation of land, you're dealing with, and that could be for all manner of purposes, banks, probate, accountancy purposes, or just, you know, the farmer wants a bit of a a valuation on a parcel of land. But there's a lot more land users coming into the rural areas now. So you've got a bit of development work going on. You've got quarries, you've got fisheries, you've got leisure. Everyone's looking at diversification because farming incomes are changing. And it's also this, I mean, recently we've seen it, haven't we, that rural properties are just in such demand, panic buying. So I guess in Lancashire was a fantastic spot for practice. Yeah, and it's got everything in Lancashire, hasn't it? It's got moorland, it's got grade one agricultural land, it's got dairy land, fisheries and coastlines. So yeah, that's been spot on. And I think anyone that's thinking of going into that sector One of the things they should do, and I know you've had these guys in before, like I have, get some experience, just have a week or two. Does it feel right to start with? You're setting off a long journey, aren't you? And I think it's 
understanding the end results is the thing that will drive you through university mm. when you think, is this really the right thing? And um, certainly I know we've spoken to guys who've gone and done university degrees and they had really no idea that, for instance, our job actually entailed a lot of meetings. Do they understand, you know, the pay structures and all this? Mm. So you really got to try before you buy. And certainly if we're looking for graduates, somebody that's had some industry experience is golden, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It, it puts you at the top of the list. Did, did you take an experience like a couple of weeks ago? I did just over 12 months. It was extended to about 15 months with Lancashire County Council. And it was absolutely fantastic. You know, loved it. Work with great people and certainly helped me secure a job afterwards because, you know, you're not green. Just into, you know, even being involved in an office, that environment from being at university or school. So, yeah, I think it's invaluable. That was another one. So the second bit of my experience was at a firm in Cheshire doing estate management. And for me, the beauty of that was that I realised I didn't want to do estate management of that nature. Mm. I wanted to do sort of more commercial. So broad experiences for as well, isn't it? Because there's so many different ways to go. Like you could go Lancashire County Council, you could go private practice, both got the merits. Absolutely. Okay, I've got a big question for you. This is why people are really listening to this podcast. I have a trampoline in the garden. I'm sick of the kids <laughs> bouncing up and down on it. I'm going to get rid of it. And I'd like to sell that land to Red Row to develop. And this equally could uh, be applied to a bigger patch of land like a farmer's field. Yeah. So how do people do this? How do they cash in? Yeah, this is the big question. One of my forthcoming sort of videos I'm going to do is a bloke in the pub said to me, and then there's a whole series. And the first one is that my land's worth a million pound an acre. It goes on from there because there's a lot of sort of common sort of perhaps myths about land development and so on and so forth. I mean, to put it in a nutshell, my customers' pains tend to be that they don't understand what they're getting into. So quite often, before people move forward, they will have started to receive some letters from developers with very attractive terms. Why is that? There are things going on in most local authorities that most landowners won't know about right. until they either get invited by the local authority to submit their site or they have an idea that they want to submit the site to the council to say, look, this is available for the development and it's capable of development. This could be 10 years prior to the land getting developed. So things like strategic housing land availability assessments, that are a mouthful of schlars, mm. not much easier, are things that councils sort of will do to identify sites coming forward so that they can supply their needs in terms of providing housing throughout their boroughs. So there's a little bit of luck involved because land, you can't sort of drive it to the other side of town, plonk it down in a more suitable place and uh, get to the front of the queue. But if you look at a standard town on a map, ignoring Greenbelt, and sort of said which way is it going to grow, it could grow in any one of four directions or eight, how many directions you want to think. So if you give your land a leg up by getting involved with someone like yourself or surveyor or planning consultant early enough, you can sort of give it a hand. You know, if it's being monitored and looked at, you're certainly going to get a better chance of success than just leaving it to chance. You're right, the first phase of it is planning. There's two ways from there on that you can go. It can be the local authority isn't meeting its five-year housing land supply, in which case you might be able to get an application in and get it approved, or you need to get allocated in the local plan. So one of those routes, both of them are quite risky though. And when a client says to me, what are the options of getting it from being agricultural to millions? I'll say there's four options. I'm going to test you now. Do you know what they are? No, I don't think I do, yeah. No. Well, well, one is self-funding. So a landowner, let's say it's going to cost 150 grand to get planning on a 20-acre size, and it could cost that. 
Well, you've got to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that one, it can get plumbing, and two, it can be delivered for plumbing, and also that you can deal with any engineering solutions. So I'm guessing with upfront speculative costs at that level, joint ventures got to be something that people yeah, keen on. That's it. So it's the other option is broadly joint ventures. So most people, yeah, you know, it's 150 grand, and you've only got one site. It's a bit different to a promoter, which we'll talk about, spending 150 grand on 10 sites and maybe getting seven. So most landowners say no. And therefore, it's working with a partner, and that partner will be a developer or a promoter. So either way, both of those parties are seeking to stand in the shoes of the landowner, get the planning, and then either buy or sell the land. The fourth way is conditional contract, similar to an option. So basically, it's how do you ensure that that party, the promoter or the developer, is not going to rip you off, is offering you the best commercial terms. Most letters they send out speculatively will offer to pay solicitors' fees, but they never offer to pay your agents' fees. Because the last thing they want is a land agent involved. Whereas actually, for the promoter or developer, I'd argue that having a land agent involved who knows what they're doing can actually help the whole process. Yeah, I'm sure it can smooth it along, can't it? And it can, going back to a bloke in the book, told me my land's worth a million pounds an acre. Well, in most parts of Lancashire, for certain, it isn't. It's not a net developable acre. And all this terminology as well needs explaining to landowners. And they need somebody on their side. So the role I look at is, especially if we're working against a PLC, it's that David and Goliath analogy. So we're working against a huge company and you've got a little landowner, who's David, and you've got Goliath on the other side. And we've got to get the right result for the landowner from start to finish. So every twist and turn, the process from entering into the legal agreement, working with a lawyer, Right the way through agreeing the price at the end or selling the land, the developer wants, make no mistake, to get the land as cheaply as possible. Mm-hmm. And the landowner will have two aims. One will be timeliness, because if they're getting on a bit, they don't want to wait too long. If they're younger, they'll wait as long as they want. And the second one is price. So we've touched on there some of the challenges, which clearly there are. There is some great benefits too, which obviously is the scale and value of the property, uh, sorry, the land. Just to give us some rough guidance, if I had 10 acres of agricultural land, what would it be worth? Let's take area A. Let's not give it a location. Now, if you're a client, I'd be saying, oh, at the moment, it's worth X. When you ask the next question, I'll be saying, I possibly not. <laughs> I'll tell you when it gets funny. And let's say it's worth £10,000 an acre yeah. for 10 acres. Okay. The next thing you can't possibly say, <laughs> just roughly, what's an average? You could say 20 to 40 times. Wow. So it's huge. You know, if you're looking at going up to 200,000 to 400,000 pounds per metric, I mean, there are areas where it's worth a lot more. Right. And it's all driven at the moment by what the houses are worth at the end. One of the things that's coming in, though, is local authorities, far more down south, but it's going to work up into the wild west of the north, isn't it, eventually? (laughs) (laughs) As I think they think we are down there. We are going to be looking at local authorities looking more at viability. You can't deliver a completely policy-compliant scheme. Then they're going to be saying, what can we get out of that site in terms of Section 106 agreement contributions? You know, making sure it pays its way. So when you're looking at increases in value of such scale, clearly you can see how land remediation and modern methods of construction and these sort of things can be huge. We're involved from the start to the purchase of the land. So when construction starts, we're not involved. But we see the technical teams getting involved early doors, dealing with technical solutions. And we dealt with some of your team. It's been great to sort of interact with them. 
I think when you're looking at new build techniques and speeding up the build, that impacts upon the land value because you're on site less, so prelims are less. You've got less chance of build costs going up during that time. You can build them faster. So as long as you've got your sales rate, as in how many sell a month, right, you're not going to be waiting for stock. You don't want people waiting to buy a house. You want them to have the house when they want it. What you guys bring in is that speed of making sure that the site is delivered in a timely manner. That's mm. the crucial thing that you guys deliver. And that adds value. So once you've worked out what all the houses are worth, knock off the developer's profit and the cost of everything, every single nail, screw and man hour on site, the residue is the land. The more you can get the cost down, the value engineering, the better the land value. I know a bit about your background that you developed this specialism to a degree during his time at Thomas Barnett, well-respected, established Northwest yeah. practice, and relatively recently you took a huge decision to leave and set up Calvin Land. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, it's such an interesting one because Armstead Barnett have been a massive part of my life since 2000. I still love the business, still in touch with my former partners there. But my decision to exit, I probably, they won't mind me talking about this, I quite enjoy talking about it because it gets it straight in my head. I exited that business for several reasons. One, I needed a change, been there 20 years, and I'm always one for doing something new. I wanted a bit more autonomy. So the original business, myself and Paul Barnett, decisions were made. Uh, probably we were having a fag and a cup of tea mm. in the back of the office back in the day. But mainly, I think, I was being pulled between fee earning, so being in the business, and working on the business. Now, at the time, if I could have chosen, I'd have chosen to work on the business. The clients we had and the deals we had going, big skill shortage. Maybe we weren't bullish enough. I don't know. But we couldn't find the right person to come in and take that fee earning on. A couple of trial and errors here and there. But I was firmly pulled in both directions, and that didn't work. So. That wasn't helping. The final thing, which is the better work-life balance I wanted. So that was a big thing for me. And we're seeing the biggest shift. And I guess, to sort of cap that story off, the one thing, this is interesting for me, the one thing that stopped me moving, because I've been thinking about it pre-pandemic quite hard, but it was money. I hate to say it. You grow into the income that you have from the business. And the business provided for me very well. And it was that doubt in my mind. We're getting to lockdown and we've taken... A big cuts in my drawings so we could keep the business going. And I suddenly realised, actually, I can survive on this. And where I've got to with it now, so 12 months on from the decision, coming up to May when I finally decided to do it, May last year, I'm looking at it now and thinking, well, yeah, so there's not as much coming out of the business at the moment, so I can see it's going to grow or grow in terms of financial viability. But because I'm loving my work so much, really loving it, I'm sort of thinking, well, I'll even, I'll be happy doing this two days a week when I'm 70, if I'm capable. To me, there's also a thing of when you possibly reach towards middle age, let's say, you do naturally reevaluate what's important to you. And you mentioned money, and I'm sure there's people can recognise that you often, when you're younger, are time rich and not very financially well off. And as you progress and run a business and progress through life, it swings, doesn't it? And I know you hold dear to you, your pursuits outside of work. Yes. There's many, many people out there with, with wealth. I think to find somebody like yourself who's a balance up a mountain in the morning or you might be going for a run in the afternoon, I think that, certainly for people around our age mm -hmm. and, and the journeys we've had in our careers, that is super appealing, far more than if somebody's earning XXXXX because, you know, there is a point and there's... Beyond a certain income, 
it doesn't make a great deal of difference to your life. You're probably living in a house that you're quite happy with. You're driving a car you're quite happy yeah. with. So I think, you know, in our groups that we chat mm. with, what you've done was massively brave and, you know, that it's something that people are interested in, envious of, and I think we'll be really intrigued by what you've done. Yeah, don't get me wrong, there's issues, you know, there's always issues in whatever you're doing, the grass is always greener, blah, blah, blah. I'm very happy with what I've done. I never thought I would be happy going holy fearing me. But I can't work on the business because the business is just me. So, I mean, there is some of that to do, sort of thinking about how do I get the balance right. So some weeks I'm doing five days, just for Easter, I managed to land myself a two-day week, as long as I'm getting the work done. But the job satisfaction is superb because rather than the four-day week I've been aiming for, the biggest change has been the pace. So I've got time generally speaking, to finish the job off to the level I want to, bring the clients up without sort of thinking, are they going to be happy? Mm-hmm. Knowing they'll be happy because I've been in touch with them all the way along. I imagine it's an easy sell to say to potential clients, you get me. This is not past the political post. This is David Calvin of Calvin Land, who's got this much experience. I guess you manage their expectations at the start. You won't maybe need to take holiday and, you know, this sort of thing. I'm getting better at that. So to start with, if I tell anybody, oh, this is obviously more public, but to start with, when I was telling people about the four-day week, the first thing I'd say is, but I've not become lazy. <laughs> so I said, I made that point. Of, and people say, well, we know you're not lazy. Or credit, you know, doing what you're doing. It's making that point, isn't it? So yeah, and you're right. What I haven't been good at until perhaps the last month or two is focusing on that time. Now I've got time off booked for holidays and so on in summer, letting them know. And I think I'm proposing to take the sort of bravish step of, emailing the clients that I've got a couple of weeks before and saying, bearing in mind on this date, I'm going to be off for a week and a half. If you've anything, let me know. Yeah. One thing I think you should do as well is to shout out Jane, your wife. Oh, yeah. Because surely, and I know, you know, she supported you in this. It would have been extremely difficult without that support, I'm sure. That massively, yeah. I think if it had been up to Jane, I'd have probably left pre-pandemic when the idea was fresh because it was like, of course you can do it. No problem. I've got every faith. When you sat there looking at the numbers, but no, absolutely, you know, from Jane and uh, my daughter's perspective, it was crucial to get it right. And as well, that sort of me being at home more, lucky I've got a detached annex, but that whole thing, it's been a seismic shift all over, really. So some of the benefits, you've got a bit more free time. I know you're a keen yogi. Running was my original out of family, out of work passion. The third thing. Yeah, the third thing. Through sort of getting injured a bit and stuff, people have been recommending yoga. So about six and a half, seven years ago, started yoga. As my daughter said, was well, sitting around humming. Hmm. I said, no, it's actually a bit different to that. So it's a style called vinyasa flow, which is fairly upbeat, your heart rate up, it's building sort of muscular endurance. But then it's also become uh, headspace, breathing techniques, even, I know it sounds a bit weird to some, but meditation and that sort of thing. As I enjoyed it more and more, late 2018, I started my yoga teacher training. Weirdly now, I've sort of realised that that actually gives me another sense of community because I'm working on my own. I've got this other job, uh, so I've got a sense of community there. But I've got the yoga teacher training and, yeah, you're right, the extreme one was the love of mountains and the love of yoga combining, which was 25 of us heading up the summative hell valley for England's highest yoga class. Good coverage for the studio. We were on the front page of a couple of yoga magazines, that sort of thing. It was brilliant. I mean, it was, it was low-key because... Sort of, we didn't want too many people turning up. Heat loss was a worry because I've got all these people. We've got them to the top of the mountain. There was a mountain leader with us as well. Got them to the top of the mountain. They're then going to start doing a yoga class. So mm. 
remind me about all the layers and stuff. The best thing was sort of the 40 mile an hour wind. I'd obviously been to the top of Scarfell and Scarfell Park before, too many boulders. So Hellebelling, flat on the summit, perfect. And they were facing over towards the Scarfells. Wonderful views, wind blowing. And in any pose, if anyone does any yoga, when you're stood on one leg, looking at a wall and a point on the floor, when you're looking at the ceiling, usually looking at a light fitting or a corner, the clouds are moving past. So that shift of balance was fantastic. So the views and the environment enhanced the yoga experience? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, you usually don't want distractions, but it just made it completely different. Looking at time, let's go to some questions that we're going to be asking everybody. So first, if you didn't work in the built environment, and obviously this podcast is all about the built environment, have you any idea what you would have done? Yeah, it would definitely go back to the original interest in farming. So land-based, that sort of growing something. But, you know, you and I have said before, sometimes you leave work at the end of the day. What have you done today? I've sent a load of emails. But at the end of the day, what have I done? Well, I've supplied a load of herbs to a restaurant. You know, to produce a physical product, I think is something really interesting. So land-based growing, I think. What's your favourite building and why? But given your interest in land, I will allow land. Well, I was actually at a great spot yesterday called Fox's Tarn, which is just on the side of Scarfell. But I do have a favourite building. I hate to say it's not in this country. It's the Flatiron Building in New York. Oh, yeah, yeah. Many a poster. Yeah, many a poster. But I've only been twice. But every time I go, I walk up to it again the next day. I think it was iconic, well ahead of its time in terms of first seal skyscraper and that sort of thing. It's just the way it looks. You can look at it from so many angles. And I like skyscrapers. So if I had to pick one here, it would be Beetham Tower in Manchester, just because of the way it stood. Not it doesn't now the same on the horizon mm-hmm. with that cantilever section. And yeah. Okay, last one. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Oh, where would I start? I've got so many mm-hmm. things that I would choose. Can I pick a different thing for each day of the week? I think no. <laughs> what I would do is read. Right, okay, I'm terrible yeah. at not finishing books. I'm, t- I'm even worse at not starting books. So, yeah, it would be reading. I'd have to, have to box the time off so it didn't go into other things. Well, I'm going to give you a fourth question then. What are you reading at the moment? Nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need the extra hour. Uh, what I was reading, uh, Ricardo Semler's Seven Day Weekend. You were saying that to sound intelligent and interested. I am, actually. But I do find that a lot of these books... Once you've read the first half, it just starts reading. Yeah, the same again. Yeah. The 80-20 principle is just that. <laughs> um, right, okay. Well, look, we're going to wrap up there, Conscious of Time. Fantastic. Just a final one for people. I'm sure they're all going to be keen to find out more about you and get hold of you now and you help them sell the land for development for millions of pounds. So where do they find out more about David and Calvin Land? So the best place is either the website, which is www.calburnland.co.uk. Google me, I will turn up. There'll be myself and a funeral director from Leyland. And I'm not the funeral director. <laughs> the other option is LinkedIn. Yeah, anyone can have a chat with me. Like yourself, you, I speak to people so often, just nothing comes of it. It doesn't matter. One day, someone rings back, and I've had people phoning back after 15 years. Do you remember? And nine times out of ten, yes, I do. So, yeah, always have to have a chat with people. Okay, great. Well, thanks for being our first guest, David. If anyone ends up listening to this and does fantasy taking part, uh, please drop me a line. That is a great format. And yeah, so we'll be listening to the next ones. Mm-hmm.